There's a wonderful sutta by the Buddha called the Salatha, which is the Arrow Sutta. And it's known for the first half of the sutta, where the Buddha basically says that in life we all get shot with suffering, but that the difference between someone who's got a spiritual practice and someone who doesn't have a spiritual practice is that the person who does have the spiritual practice just feels the pain, knows it's going to end, and doesn't add any personalizing uh, resistance to it. Doesn't say, why me? Why did, did I get shot? Doesn't add all the needless thinking, needless uh, resistance to the experience, just leans into the experience knowing and takes care of the wounds without getting into all the fuss of, you know, why me? But the Buddha says that the uninstructed person makes the experience all the worse by not just having the pain of the, the arrow, the arrow being a metaphor, uh, but adding all the stressful thinking of why does this happen to me? Why am I the one who gets hurt, abandoned, insulted, uh, mistreated, etc.? And the argument in life is that in life we all experience not only old age suffering in terms of illness and grief and uh, death, well, we also suffer little things, the Buddha said, difficult people, frustrations, uh, disappointments. Uh, we, the Buddha said, get stuck with people who are disagreeable and we get separated from people we care about. And so this is, this is what happens when you sign up for a human birth. It's not personal. It's just part of the journey. But the tendency to forget the universality of our experience and instead try to claim and own the crap that happens to us in terms of why is this happening to me uh, adds a whole lot of suffering. And yet, that's where most people end the teaching. They don't talk any more about how the sutta goes on. But as quite often the case, some of the, the most interesting tidbits the Buddha saves for the end. So the Buddha in this says, when a normal person has a terrible or uncomfortable experience, they generally crave sensual pleasure. Why is that? Because they don't understand that there's any other way to respond to discomfort or pain other than to resist it. They fail to see, and here's the part we'll be talking about tonight, that every experience has an allure, which in Pali is a sada, a drawback, adinava, and an escape, nisarana. So I'll repeat that. This is a teaching called Yoniso Manasikara, and it's the teaching that the Buddha focused on for the last 20 years of his life. He actually stopped uh, talking about a lot of the emphasis of his early teachings, and he kept on saying, appropriate attention, appropriate attention, appropriate attention, over and over, Yonisa Manasikara. Um, it was amongst his last words. And Yonisa Manasikara means that to understand how our minds work, why we have our addictive habits, why we uh, can't get rid of some 
tendencies and behaviors we want to get rid of, why we get emotionally stuck in life, it's because every single mental event, every single action we do, every single habit, every single tendency, every single trait has an allure, has a drawback, and has a way out. Now, most of us are very well aware of the positives about the things we do addictively. If you're uh, a hard drinker, you can sing the praises of Johnny Walker Red or uh, your favorite vodka. You could tell how smooth it goes down, the warm, fuzzy feeling in the head. If you are a coke addict, you could sing the praises of how smart you feel when you have the rush. If you are addicted to uh, shopping, you can describe the warm, amazing feeling and the empowerment of when we swipe the credit card and then we get the shiny box with the iPad in it and you get it home and then you know, maybe a few weeks later, the glow disappears around the object. Uh, so most of us can see very clearly the benefits, the things we like about that which we're addicted to. And most of us can see the drawbacks of the parts of ourselves we want to get rid of. Most of us, without any pause, can explain why we, why we don't like panic attacks. You don't have to think too hard about that one. Well, a panic attack is kind of awful. I start hyperventilating, I start sweating, I feel dizzy, I start to look really uncomfortable around people, I have to leave a situation that is a social event. Maybe uh, procrastination. We all know why we don't like that. We have projects we'd like to get done. Uh, things we need to do, and yet we get stuck right at the very point where it, sometimes there's just a little bit of work left or we just can't somehow push through some of it. And so we can see what we don't like about the parts of ourselves that we want to get rid of, and we can see the things we like about our, have our addictions. But it's very difficult to see what the drawbacks of an addiction are, it's even more difficult to see what the positives are about those parts of ourselves that we want to get rid of. If I suggest, for example, that panic attacks, obsessive worrying, indecision, procrastination, fear, anxiety, they don't only have drawbacks, but each of these states of being have very real allures to them. Now, when we start to understand this teaching, what the Buddha is essentially hinting at is what we now know today is the fact that the mind is not a single processing machine. You don't only have a conscious mind. You also have what's known as an emotional mind. Your 
mind is, we could call it a dual processor, much like computers can process two things at the same time. For example, when I'm writing a talk for tonight, I also have my email on in the background, and without it being consciously in the foreground, it's still checking for my emails, and when an email comes in, it gives a little alert. But none of that is happening in the foreground of the computer. That's happening in the background of the computer. Is this familiar? Do you get what dual processing is? It's one thing is active, which we're interacting with, and one application or operation of the computer is happening completely in the background. We're not doing it. It's just happening. For example, you could be working on writing something, and in the background, you could be downloading a song. Is this, is this clear? Okay. So this is the way the mind works. They are your thoughts. That's the application in your brain that you work with. You have your thinking mind, it's conscious, and you're aware of the world in that application. Your brain has its thoughts, it narrates life, it has a bunch of concepts that it uses to make sense. But meanwhile, in the background, there's another application that's running, and that's called your emotional mind. Your emotional mind, all the time, just like my email application is scanning for emails, at every moment of the day, my emotional mind is also working. Just while I'm thinking right now and giving a talk to you, and I'm presenting you Niso Manasikara, my unconscious mind is checking your faces to see if you're attuned, to see if some of you are drifting away or looking bored, to see how well connected I feel. Do I feel safe in this environment? Do I feel that I can relax with you? Or do I have to be on guard? You are doing that every moment you're awake. Your conscious mind is thinking thoughts, planning about your future, deciding what it all means, trying to make sense of your life, even reciting the story of your existence, your opinions, your views. All of the thoughts play out in that frontal left hemisphere that you are aware of. But meanwhile, in the background, what Freud called the unconscious, what some psychologists now call the emotional mind, there's a whole set of operations and beliefs that are churning away and these beliefs are comparing the present moment and how secure we feel in any situation and it's comparing it against past experiences where we were wounded or where we felt loved and it's constantly looking to see oh does any of this remind me of some event in my past where people rejected me. For instance, if in my past, and I gave a talk in fourth grade to a group of people, and the teachers suddenly became cross with me, and if Julian started to make the same expression, my unconscious mind would read it, and I would start to get anxious. And my conscious mind might not have any clue why I'm suddenly starting to get anxious. So don't make that face. <laughs> so, um, so 
One of the, the, the operating application that's conscious is language and ideas, and the operating part that's unconscious, the dual, the second processor, is emotional. Not to mention there's also other operations like breathing, which you're not right now supervising. You're probably not supervising your digestion. You're not supervising the flow of blood circulation. You're not supervising any of that consciously. You're aware of that, that you're not doing that, but most people are unaware of just how much emotional processing is occurring all the time. So the emotional mind seeks safety. It seeks connection. It's um, constantly looking for signals in body language of other people, in facial expression of other people, in movements of other people that tell us that something is about to change relationally, that we're no longer safe, or that suddenly we are more accepted by others. So this is why the human mind can have two completely different views this is why the human mind can hold completely contrary beliefs. For example, um, some people really believe that relationships are the most important thing that they can have in life, and yet at the same time they can hold the belief that being intimate with another human being entails wounds and risks and pain. Those beliefs are completely incompatible, but they make sense because the belief that relationships are important might be held in the conscious mind, whereas the belief that relationships and intimacy cause wounds and rejection can be held in the unconscious mind. So we can hold completely different beliefs at the exact same time, and sometimes those beliefs can be completely contradictory. I would like to be confident all the time, but there are times when I start to feel anxious and worried because my emotional mind has stumbled upon a belief that is triggering anxiety. For example, we were using the other day the woman who's a photographer who's very talented, and she really wants to enter the the photo exhibit that's at the local gallery. But every time she gets to the point where she's about to finish off the application, she stops. She can't go through with it. Why is that? Because she has developed an emotional belief that to take a risk, to show her true self to other people, to reveal her creative side, leads to rejection, and that leads to pain. So one belief tells her she should move forward in her life, she should accomplish things. The other part of her mind is telling her that to take any risk creatively leads to pain and rejection. Another example, I've worked with people who get stuck in jobs that they really dislike. They feel unfulfilled, they can't find any purpose, the creative part of their job has long since evaporated, they're going through the motions and all they do is complain about their work. Consciously, this person can list every reason why their job is not worthy for them. And yet, at the same time, year in and year out, 
that person will stay in their job till their friends get tired of hearing about how much they hate the job and their friends want to say, well, why the hell don't you just quit? What those friends don't realize is that this person has developed an emotional belief that his job has become a surrogate family, that his emotional needs of connection are being met by the people at his job. Every time he goes there, he goes to a, a family system that's much safer than his real family, where people know who he is, accept him, and don't push him very hard and don't challenge him. So even though his conscious mind wants to quit, his emotional mind won't let him because his emotional mind needs the people at his job to feel connected. This is why in our lives we can very often want to change and yet be utterly incapable of it because the symptoms, the parts of ourselves we want to get rid of, they all have purposes. The alcoholic, his alcohol relieves his social anxiety. The heroin addict's heroin relieves his or her anger and her inability to be with her anger. The cocaine addict or shopaholic, their addictive behaviors spur the dopamine reward system which makes them feel rewarded for being alive. So if we simply remove if we simply try to push away a symptom, a part of ourselves that we don't like, without understanding its allure, why we developed, why we turned to it in the first place, all we're doing is we're going to render ourselves back in an even worse place often until we learn how to meet the needs that were unaddressed in our life before we found that addiction or that undesirable symptom. For example, if somebody's panic attacks are a way to get them out of difficult interpersonal situations, it's a way to tell them to leave when they feel socially overwhelmed. If we simply cure their panic attacks by giving them a beta blocker and deprive them of any tool that will give them an excuse to leave an overwhelming social experience, they will not be any better off. Now certainly, of course, um, one would argue that with very low bottom alcoholics or heroin addicts, it's always a good idea to end those addictions. But what we're doing in long-term healing, whether it's from exhaustion of workaholism whether it's from addictions, whether it's for uh, habits that have run us into the ground, whether it's due to, whatever it's due to, being stuck in life, it's because we haven't yet found the underlying reason that has created a motivation for these symptoms, these parts of ourselves that we're so desperate to get rid of, but won't go away willingly. So, the way through is first to understand that one, resisting a symptom, simply trying to push it down, doesn't work. 
you'll simply find another symptom to replace it. Furthermore, if I push down my need for, uh, when I was an alcoholic, simply white-knuckled my uh, craving for alcohol, the emotional underlying belief that was there that said that alcohol was the only way to relieve my social anxiety and my fear of being around other people, then my sobriety wouldn't have lasted very long. It would have lasted only until I wound up in an overwhelming situation where I was deprived of any ability to white-knuckle it, and then I would have wound up drinking again. So the way through to make any significant change in life when it comes to removing those parts of ourselves that are maladaptive coping strategies. Not, we're not removing emotions, by the way. Emotions are natural states, so there's nothing to remove about an emotion. But we do develop in life maladaptive coping strategies like alcoholism, like uh, addictive shopping, like food binging, like workaholism, like sex addictions. We develop these behaviors that are our way, our unconscious mind way of essentially <coughs> alleviating our pain. And the key, so the Buddha's final part is Nisarana. Seeing both, we come up with something that will solve or address the underlying need that the bad habit or the addiction serves but will not cause us suffering. Let me give you a very simplistic example of this before I go to some more uh, deeper examples. Worrying. What is the allure of worrying? Worrying gives us the belief that we're prepared, that we can visualize and prepare for any bad thing that might happen in life. That's the allure. What's the drawback of worrying? Well, it makes us anxious. It fills up the mind with obsessive thoughts. We can't stop doing it once we start. It doesn't feel good to worry. So worrying has both an allure, which is that it makes us feel prepared, but it also has a drawback in that it causes us anxiety. It makes us feel tight. It actually makes us even more reactive and generally can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what might be an example of meeting the underlying need to be prepared, but not in a way that causes us suffering? Well, here's an example. Every time we start to worry, we might see, oh, I'm worrying, and then we might know, well, part of me doesn't feel prepared. Part of me feels that I'm vulnerable in the world. So what we could do instead is stop and reflect on all the people that would come to our aid if we got into trouble, all the people that would be there, all the resources we had. That would make us feel more prepared, but that thought would not cause anywhere near as much suffering as worry. So what we're doing is we're replacing a habit that caused a lot of suffering but had an allure with a process that meets the same underlying emotional need to feel prepared, but doesn't cause us suffering. 
Another example with worrying is instead of worrying, we could reflect on all the times in our life that we were caught off guard by bad news and we still survived. That too would make us feel prepared. So instead of needing to resist the worry, we simply replace it with something that does and performs the same emotional task. The key to Yoniso Manasikara and its newer version, what's known as coherence therapy, is that you don't have to resist anything. What we need to do is simply understand the allure, why we've turned to our addictions, why we've turned to our... uh, We have to explore what's beneath the fears, the anxieties, the sadnesses that have led to our, uh, our... drawbacks in life, our addictions, our, uh, our challenges. And then, when we understand them, we develop much more skillful ways to meet their needs. A great example is drug addiction. Drug addiction is very often a way to, as we've discussed, to regulate emotions when we don't trust other people. We've grown up in families where we've been traumatically rejected or felt as an outsider or felt unloved or felt like we were essentially uh, a pain or that our emotions, at least some of our emotions, were unwanted and or unlovable. And so we learn in life that rather than to turn to other people to express and share and regulate our emotions interpersonally, we seek drugs to regulate our emotions. So the emotional belief that legitimizes taking drugs and alcohol is that it helps us do something that we don't trust other people for. So what would be the solution for that? It would be to find a safe community of people that you can trust to open up and express those emotions that you couldn't safely express in your family of birth and start talking about those emotions with the people that will not judge you because they're struggling too. And that way you meet the underlying emotional need but you don't need to seek the addiction that has all the drawbacks. Now, there's a wonderful... uh, I can name a couple of more advanced versions of that and uh, how it works. Uh, I worked with a woman who grew up with a very, very religious and demanding uh, father, extremely religious. And um, uh, she... As she grew older into being a woman, her father paid less and less attention because in her uh, in their family's spiritual tradition, women were not seen as equals as men. And so she came up to the emotional belief that the only way to keep her father's attention was to constantly achieve more and more and more at school, work harder, get better grades, write more essays, do anything because emotionally she didn't understand that her father's dwindling attention had nothing to do with her performance in life. It had everything simply to do with her gender. She was engaged in a no-win 
task, but she had no alternative because for a child to lose the attention of a father is the most painful form of abandonment. So as she grew into adult, she had no work-life relation ratio whatsoever. She was working 14 hours a day. She had no uh, meaningful, deep friendships. And when she came to me, what we did was we took the very basic approach of first, rather than trying to get rid of her workaholism, let's understand why it was there, what emotional need it was meeting. And of course, over time, when we explored her family background and the dwindling attention of her father, we came to the conclusion from her own work that that was the way she tried to get attention as a child. So what she did was she simply wrote down on an index paper, piece of paper, I believe that unless I am perfect and do more and accomplish more than everything, anyone else, I will not be loved. I will not be cared for. I will not be seen. And every time she read that and she was really activated in her workaholism, she would then, we, we worked with her so that she would look for disconfirming evidence. She'd see how other people were getting love and attention without working that much, how other people in her life had given her love and attention without overworking or overachieving. So we weren't telling the emotional mind. We were simply, while the emotional mind was activated, show it a belief that completely disconfirms it, which allows it then to find an escape. Another famous example I like is um, in this classic textbook, using this technique, um, there was this woman who was uh, 28, living with her mother, uh, very much in love with her fiancé. And the fiancé uh, found a, a flat for them and said, well, let's move in together. And the mother said, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Go, live with your fiancé. is wonderful. This would be a terrific thing. The only problem was every time they would mention it to the 28-year-old girl, she would fall apart. She'd have a panic attack. She'd race to a room. She'd threaten to break up the relationship. She would storm away. And so when she went into therapy, the coherence therapist didn't shame her, didn't say, hey, just get your act together and move in with your boyfriend. Far from it, what he did was he said, okay, let's find out what the emotional allure is for staying with your mom, why this has, what the emotional belief that's keeping you there. So they free associated, and one of the ways you can get to the underlying emotional belief is just imagine what your life would be like if you couldn't do that, that symptom. For example, imagine if you want to get rid of uh, alcohol in your life, but you don't understand the emotional lure of it, just visualize your life without alcohol and you'll start to feel the anxiety and the interpersonal stress and you'll start to see why it's so appealing to you. Much like in this situation, they free-associated and he kept on saying to her, without thinking, without thinking, 
I'm going to read you a sentence and you complete it. And the sentence was, I believe I can't leave my mother because... And she kept on, first she kept on giving the logical answer, which, well, I should, because I should be with my boyfriend. She kept on giving the answer he wanted to hear. But he kept on proceeding, and finally she came up, she stumbled upon the real underlying emotional belief. He said, I believe I can't leave my mother because, and she responded without thinking, because I believe she'll die if I do. And there it was the underlying emotional allure. Now, when they explored that and they ran with that, uh, that statement, what they uncovered over a while was that at some point in her childhood, her father, who was a violent drunk, was on the verge of beating up her mother when she, as a girl, wandered in between the two fighting parents and got in between, and the father, seeing his daughter standing before the mother, grumbled and turned away. So she, as a six-year-old girl, came up to the conclusion that a six-year-old would. I am keeping my mother alive. I am the one who is keeping my mother safe. So until they came to that underlying emotional belief that motivated her to stay, and they saw that, it was pointless arguing with her to leave because she had this strong, deep belief, unconsciously held, that her presence was the only thing that was keeping her mother alive and safe. So what he did was he had her write on a piece of paper, I believe my presence is keeping my mother alive. And every time from that point on, the fiancé would ask her to leave and she started to get activated, she'd read that card and then look for all the signs that her mother was now safe. The father was no longer there. Her mother was now living in a place that was very different. Her mother had lots of friends. There was no longer anyone there that was a danger to her mother. So she didn't lecture herself, she didn't resist, she didn't do anything other than understand the underlying emotional belief and then show it that it was no longer true. And within a month she wound up moving in with her boyfriend. So the point of this is, is that the work that we do here in mindfulness and in working with coaches, and in talking about our feelings without planning, without uh, essentially uh, guiding, without overthinking, with speaking from the heart. It has so many, many purposes, but none more valuable than the fact that we can begin to understand the underlying emotional beliefs that have kept us stuck in repetitive behaviors that are no longer working. And once we understand those beliefs, we can then meet them strategically in a way that will make ourselves feel safe and not abandoned. And we can make the transition to growth without it being a jarring, white-knuckling, painful experience.